Today, continuing to be okay with being okay, or uh, why admitting we are less than perfect may make us more perfect. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. We began the conversation, you know, last episode, and uh, I, you know, it, 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 the, the premise is that we have to figure out as human beings the reality that our knowledge is imperfect and the decisions that we make are imperfect, and none of that calls into question the value of perfection. Uh, instead, it puts us in the proper light uh, as mortal, imperfect beings, and so I'm trying to point out some of those areas where an acknowledgement of our imperfection, uh, and I, the way I've referred to this internally in my own notes is with the word imprecision, that an acknowledgement of the imprecision with which we experience and interact with the world is actually a good thing for us. And so we talked about it in terms of William James's pragmatics and some quotations from him and developments out of those ideas. And then, and then we talked about classical tragedies, the Arestia. I even mentioned the cities of refuge in the book of Numbers. The reason I brought that up is because the shedding of blood in order to relieve the shedding of blood, meaning vengeance has to be taken on, you know, you have to have justice somehow, uh, ends up with the world being full of blood. You know, it's the old Gandhi thing, uh, that if uh, if we all live by the rule of uh, an eye for an eye, then the whole world goes blind, right? Everybody ends up with uh, losing their sight. And that's, and that's sort of what happens with the shedding of blood in Scripture. And that's that journey that I was taking you on from Cain and Abel through Noah to Moses. And I didn't take all the steps, but the cities of a refuge to hide from the avenger of blood that's designated by God to execute judgment on those who perpetrated wickedness ends in the world being filled with the blood of those who have committed the crimes and then those who have shed the blood of those who committed the crimes, but in doing so became those who shed blood. And that makes us all just guilty. For instance, not every war that David fights is some unjust war. And yet David is precluded from building the temple because he has shed blood. It's not because his activities were outside the range of justice. It's because the shedding of blood is inherently evil. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not saying that. That's the point of this, that there is a moral dilemma. There must be justice, and yet we need to stop shedding blood. What are we supposed to do about that? Look for a redeemer. <laughs> that's what we do in the process. And so that's why we end up with rivers and creeks filled with blood in the Revelation, in Revelation 16, which I didn't go into in any detail, but I was just pointing out that it's not unheard of for us to be in a predicament that's insoluble. 
And so I gave beyond the classical examples in the Orestia and then the biblical example in Numbers, I was giving a, a contemporary example of uh, capital punishment. And, and, and in making the point, as I was laying out the notes for preparing that episode, I thought to myself, I read something about almost every week about someone being exonerated who had been on, on uh, death row, as they refer to it. You know, they'd been in line for execution, some kind of execution. And that week, no case popped up. I just looked for something in the current news. I just looked down headlines, and there was no case that popped up. So I thought I, I'll use a classic example. I mentioned uh, the Martinsville 7, encouraged you to go read that story, which is a great background story as an example of how dangerous capital punishments enforcement can be how inequitable it can be. And so I still encourage you to go look that up if you have time. But in the meantime, as soon as I was done recording that episode, that evening I saw a story which uh, the, the timelines won't line up the same if you go look all this up and figure it out because we air these shows a couple of weeks after uh, we actually record them a week or two sometimes. And so what happened was uh, a week ago or so from when I'm recording it right now, uh, Jesse Johnson had been freed 25 years after the murder he was convicted of having committed. And, and the, 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 so I saw that news story and thought, ah, there, there's a current example. And then I thought, ah, maybe I'll go ahead and stick that in and we'll go ahead and finish up uh, the topic this week instead of waiting two or three weeks to do it. So Jesse Johnson, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether he's guilty or not. I don't know. I wasn't there. I obviously, when the crime was committed, and I haven't perused all of the documents that say he did or didn't commit the crime. But I can tell you this: that it was two years ago that his conviction was overturned in Oregon for that crime that was committed back in 1998, and of which he was convicted somewhere around 2004 and then was given the death penalty for it. And he's been waiting ever since. Now, you can say, well, he should have been executed, but that's the point here, that after a certain period of time, they realized there was something wrong with this prosecution, something unjustly targeting this man in his, in his prosecution. And the Innocence Project, the Oregon version, the Oregon State uh, version of the Innocence Project took up the case and ended up uh, with a win in this case. So a couple of years ago, his conviction was overturned. Now, two years later, he's finally released. Something's up with that, right, too. And, and if you say, well, you know, why, why was his conviction overturned? What was so suspicious about it? Listen to this. He was convicted despite the fact that the night of the murders, a law enforcement officer had spoken with a neighbor who said they saw a different man leaving the house after the murder time, that they saw someone else running away from the house, not the person they were going to arrest. And if you say, why would they do that? Well, the law enforcement officer, according to the Innocence Project, and according to that neighbor, apparently, the law enforcement officer who was at that neighbor's house and talking to them made some, and I'll quote here in the article that Daisy will reference for you. I've got the link uh, in the notes that I gave to you, Daisy. There were, said there were clear and unambiguous statements of racism, and I'll give you the example in a moment, 
by a detective involved in the case who discouraged a neighbor from sharing that she witnessed a white man running away from the scene on the night of the murder. The murder victim was black, and Jesse Johnson, which, which is a weird name for me to say, y'all, just to back up, because my grandmother's name was Jesse Johnson. The person I call Granny on the air, her name was Jesse Johnson. It was spelled with an I, J-E-S-S-I-E, uh, but that was her maiden name. So it's, so it's always weird to me when I say that name. That's just a personal note. Back to the story. Uh, so Jesse Johnson is uh, this the black man that was convicted of the crime, and this neighbor said she witnessed a white man running away, and this detective discouraged her from sharing that because he said, and I quote, according to the Oregon Innocence Project, a N-word for a black man, a, an N-word died, and an N-word is going to pay for it. That's the statement. Now, regardless of what you think about whether Jesse Johnson did it or not, and I doubt any of us have any knowledge of whether that's the case or not, that would be enough to make anyone say, wow, this conviction is suspicious. And we ought to get someone in here who's not just trying to find someone to blame for it if we're going to talk about this. And 25 years later, he's walking out of the prison free because somebody's admitting that that was wicked, that that was absolutely wrong to be done. I've said all of that to say you can understand why in terms of capital punishment, this is especially important because if he had been executed, which the stays and the delays and all of that I know are frustrating to people, but here you go. If he had been executed, all we would be doing is apologizing to a community or offering apologies to family members or something like that. But there would be no way to let him out of the grave and say, hey, sorry about that. Didn't mean to execute you. Go on about your life. Just doesn't happen. And so clearly there's a danger in capital punishment that's not present in other forms of uh, punishment, including incarceration, which is itself horrible. This man has been in prison for 25 years, likely because someone just wanted to blame some black person for this crime. That's with a capital B. So I say all of that to say on one side, there's a reason to say you should not use capital punishment. You should not be harsh in your convictions. I don't know, what, whatever you want to say. You should mitigate the practice of justice against criminals, you know, whatever. Gripe about the criminal justice system or whatever you want to do. But then on the other side, and I mentioned this the other day, the victim is still dead and she was brutally murdered. It was, as the police described it, you know, a, uh, a slaughter, a scene from a slaughterhouse. So it is a horrible injustice that was done, and something needs to make that right. The victims deserve some sense of, or some justice if they're still alive. If they're not still alive, they still deserve justice as human beings that have been killed. And society deserves justice. That's a problem for us to resolve that we cannot possibly resolve. You can't say, well, let's make a, a, a perfect justice system. There will never be a perfect justice system. We should constantly be making it better, and it ought to be better. 
So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not equivocating at all about saying the criminal justice system needs to be better. It needs to be more equitable. It needs to be more, more aware of the realities that motivate people to do the things that they do. And I mean, on the law enforcement side and on the criminal side, I'm in favor of all of that. None of that changes that somehow we still have to make things right when someone's house is ransacked or when someone's person is violated or when someone is literally killed. There still has to be something done about it. So I have served on criminal juries. I've served on a criminal jury and, uh, and we convicted a man and sent him to prison and we cried about it as a jury, which I, I don't know how anybody wouldn't do that because you're taking a man's life away from him by putting him in prison. And yet he had to go. It was clear that he had committed the crime. There was no doubt about it. Now, I said all of that to say that's how, that's how problematic some of these things are. There's no resolution to that. Do I think it's just that a man who was raised in a, in a neighborhood that basically prohibited him from having a successful life, and I don't mean by that no one could have broken out of it, but I mean everything was pitched against this guy that we convicted when I was on a jury. I, I, can't, I can't pretend to look at that and say that I don't feel terrible for what that man is going to go through because now he's going to be in prison, he's going to be a felon, his job opportunities are going to be permanently limited 25 years from now when he gets out of prison, and so on. All of that's horrible, and yet I met the victims too. We heard them on the on the stand, and they deserve justice. And they do not they did not deserve to have a gun waved in their face while they were being robbed. And somebody needed to go to prison for that, and someone did. It is a terrible dilemma that we're in. There is no resolution that just solves all the problems. And so I, I've experienced that even more so in terms of civil law. <laughs> you know, I, I've never served on a civil jury. And it's not because I haven't gone. I've been called quite a few times. I go, I'm called, I go up to the room, they put you in the chairs, you know, you're number one to 50, and we'll start asking you questions. And would you have any problem making a decision about this on the basis of the preponderance of evidence? You know, that's the question that always knocks me out. And so I always raise my hand and say, I, I, it depends on how you define it. Well, it 51% likely that this person, you know, cheated that person or that, you know, this claim is legitimate, then you would rule in favor of the, you know, plaintiff and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can't do that. 51% likelihood that we're right doesn't seem like sufficient justification to take away someone's property. So I'm just, I'm just not comfortable doing that. And they're like, okay, see you later. <laughs> and I go back home. Uh, and, and, but I really do believe that. I, that's why I can serve on a criminal jury. If you say to me, you've got to know beyond a reasonable doubt that this man committed the crime, if you're going to send him to prison, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, we know beyond a reasonable doubt. Could we be wrong? Yeah, it's possible. But it's not, we're not going to do it if, we're, if we think it's really possible that we're wrong. So we convict him because we know in a civil court, you're just like, yeah, you know, it's so close, but I think that guy's right. So yeah, take that guy's stuff away and give it to that guy instead. That's just so wrong because it's so uncertain. But then that reveals to you what my problem really is. 
that in everything we do, there is a permanent conundrum. In the civil court, for instance, suppose the guy really did, you know, cheat this other person and really did take from them resources that were super important to them. And now they're just trying to make things right by going to court and suing to get their property back or to, you know, whatever, hit the lottery like some people use the courts for. But in this case, let's say they just want to get their property back. I get that they should be able to get their property back. It just seems to me you should be able to demonstrate with more clarity than 51% that that's the case. That's my problem. So my point is, from my attitude, I'm creating a problem for the guy who just wants to get his property back. I shouldn't blame him and say, well, if you can't demonstrate it by 75% instead of 51%, you can't get your property back. But on the other hand, if the other guy really does deserve that property, if he's not cheating, if he didn't lie in order to acquire it, or if it was his to begin with, I don't want to take it away from him because of a 51% chance. I'm stuck. I'm in a dilemma. And so my my, uh, unwillingness to serve on the jury, by the way, doesn't mean I'm uncomfortable with imprecision. It means I just don't like the standards we've set in our civil justice system. Yeah, and am I worthy to to measure that? Probably not. But I mean, you know, I'm just one juror, and I just have to tell what I think about it. Okay, all that said, to say that dilemma is present throughout our criminal justice system. Uh, A a relative of mine had his iPad stolen recently. The great thing about having an iPad stolen is you can know right where it is as soon as somebody turns it on. They turned it on. He knew exactly where it was. He went where it was. He went in the parking lot and stood and stared at the car, knowing where it was, in the front seat even or the back seat. I mean, you knew right where it was, but it wasn't visible. But it was in the car. There was no doubt it was there. So he called law enforcement. They're like, hey, we can't do anything about it. You know, we, we uh, and you can understand why that would be. He did, it was the same thing at the person's house. I think he ended up there, or he could see where it was when they turned it on again at their house, but it's the same thing. When law enforcement comes, what are they going to do? Take your word for it that it was yours to begin with and not some hackers figured out how to confiscate your iPad because they got access to your find my iPad, you know, find my iPhone, whatever that software is on there, you know, where you find your friends kind of thing. So it's a real dilemma for law enforcement, and you can understand then why we use that expression, possession is nine-tenths of the law. You know, you hear people say that, and you wonder what on earth they mean. Well, you can imagine the dilemma for a police officer showing up, and he doesn't know Fred, and he doesn't know Barney, and Fred says Barney's got his iPad, and for all the officer knows, it was Barney's iPad to begin with, and, I, you know, how's he going to discern any of that? And so the idea that we just have some miraculously perspicuous uh, understanding of justice and we can execute it immediately just doesn't happen in the real world. The reality is, and this is, I think this is just as true as the statement nine-tenths of the law is in the possession, you know, the reality is nine-tenths of the law, of nine-tenths of law enforcement is just keeping your stuff to begin with. Uh, This is why we, think about that. That's weird, isn't it? Because we think, no, no, you know, law enforcement, that's all a matter of the police. There aren't enough police in the world to keep the law, to keep the world in order if everybody chooses to run amok. There just aren't enough. It's a thin blue line. That's the point. 
And so, you know, like in, in our parking lot, we're constantly telling people, and I mean, by our parking lot, Criswell College, uh, we're always telling people because we're in downtown Dallas or near it, uh, take, hide, and lock, you know? So take, take, your, take your goods out of the car with you. Take your keys with you. Hide the stuff you need to leave in your car so that somebody can't see it from outside of it. So they don't want to break in and steal anything. And then lock your car. Uh, don't let people just wander around through your car and figure out what they want out of it. Why do we say all of that? Because you're better off keeping your catalytic converter. Oh, yeah, the take-hide lock doesn't work for that, does it? But whatever, you get the idea. You're better off keeping whatever the thing is you wanted to keep than trying to hope that law enforcement can get it back for you. The, the reality, that's just the reality of the world that we live in. And that's part of what I'm saying. We don't live in a black and white, you know, nicely curated uh, society where, uh, you know, where you have uh, a person on the street corner. You can just wave your hand and say, oh, officer, this man is stealing something from me. Would you please, would you please stop him and return my property right now? Even if you have something stolen, it's very likely it's going to end up in evidence or in a, you know, who knows, a locker somewhere and not given back to you right away and so on. All of that, not, I'm not complaining about law enforcement. Thank heavens we have policemen we can call and ask for help when we need help. No complaint against them. It's a complaint against the realities of a fallen world. We just live in a world that's not perfect. And because of that, I think it's important that we understand that in a lot of circumstances that are defined by what I believe is the most absolute thing there is, I mean fixed and absolute morality itself, the, the, the things that are right and the things that are wrong. Not a list of rights and wrongs, not a list of laws and rules, not moralism, but ethics itself. I'm, I'm an absolute believer in it. I think it's real. The dilemmas that we face in that domain are some of the most confusing and least soluble problems that we face in our entire lives. And it's helpful for us to be able to acknowledge that. We're not happy when there's no easy solution to a moral challenge. That's just the reality of it. I see it in people's eyes all the time. When I'm asking them questions in my ethics class, this comes up. But we're not, so we're not happy when there's not an easy moral solution to a challenge or an easy solution to a moral challenge. Or, or, by the way, I said not an easy solution. Sometimes there's not any resolution regardless of how much ethical expertise or nuance you apply. Sometimes there is just no good way out. I can give you a bunch of examples. The easiest and most obvious is the one I've shared with you in previous episodes. Not going to go through the details again. You've heard it a thousand times. You'll hear it a thousand more. But it's the truth versus loyalty question. You know, you have a, a, a Nazi uh, soldier at your door and a Jewish friend in your closet. And you don't know what you're supposed to do because lying is wrong. But so is betraying your friend. And so what are you supposed to do when he says, do you have a Jew in your closet? Do I... Am I supposed to uphold truth here or loyalty? What, which am I supposed to do? I've had students look for a way out, you know, and I've had some creative answers. I mean, I think the most creative ever was a hand immediately went up and he said, faint. <laughs> that was, which is, you know, clever, if nothing else. But eventually, you still got to deal with the question, right? 
Fainting's not a bad idea, but it's basically denial or uh, withdrawal, you know? Let, let me just, not, I'm just not gonna answer this question. See you later. Uh, and then you pass out. So we the, the reality of it is that there's not an easy solution to that question. I do have an answer. I have an answer I would give. I've gone through it before. I'm not gonna do it in this episode. But the fact that I even have an answer doesn't imply that it solves the problem that is still there, even when I give my answer. So, I mean, I'll give you another example, and I'll put it in terms that I think a lot of us can identify with. And this one has to do with loyalty in both cases, loyalty to your family, loyalty to your nation, caring about your personal family and caring about your, you know, your citizen, your citizenship, your commitment to your country. Uh, and I, or, or your society, however you want to put it, it's fine with me. And you can imagine this, I, I'll put it in other terms first, this is not the example I want to give, but you can imagine the context within which I'm saying this when parents have to face the dilemma of handing over uh, their offspring, their child, uh, for some law enforcement violation, you know? So we're coming to arrest your son, and, and they have to decide whether they're going to be a part of bringing about their son or the daughter's uh, demise uh, in this judgment that's going to come from the society. Again, it's not a, I'm, not, I'm not saying that one is the moral dilemma. I'm not, I'm not describing it that way. But I am saying it's enough of a dilemma that even in the Old Testament, when God tells them that, you know, when your son or your daughter does this or that, then you will execute them, he, has to, he also has to say to them, and you will not spare because of your mercy, meaning your desire to spare your child is not going to keep you from serving your society in this case, in Israel's case, in the Old Testament. The fact that he says that tells you that in the person's mind, oh no, now I've got a dilemma. I've got to solve this problem. But let me put the moral dilemma more strongly in terms that I think relate to our understanding of our families and our nation. Uh, so suppose you are uh, in your family, uh, you are in a position, in a predicament, where the only way you can protect your kids from the law and so I'll give an example of a law that would be something you believe you need to protect your children from because right now in California, these laws are being proposed, not necessarily adopted. I don't know. Again, I'm a couple of weeks out from the future when you'll be hearing this, which is weird. You're listening to this in the future. You didn't even know you were in the future, but you are. Uh, anyway, so I don't know whether this law will pass or not. I don't know what will happen with it. But right now in California, you know, these laws are being proposed to Say, you know, if parents refuse their children uh, gender transition uh, care, that the children can be taken out of the family's home. Uh, and I think the idea is, you know, just like any other form of what they would view as child abuse, we're going to protect parents, protect children from abusive parents. But I mean, a lot of parents are in an uproar about this one. I don't know whether it's justified or not. I haven't read the wording of the law. I don't know what it's actually like because there's a lot of bluster around issues like this and a lot of inaccurate statements. I've not done the research to examine the law. I don't live in California, so I'm not quite as directly related to it. It's just come out recently as a story. Well, that was a lot of apologizing, wasn't it? Anyway, the point is, I'm saying, let's suppose it is the way parents are interpreting it. And they're saying, so my kid's going to go to, a, you know, just to some event somewhere. Somebody's going to convince them 
that they're of a different gender. And then you're going to come to my house and say, if I don't allow them to receive hormonal therapy to become the other gender, then you're going to take them out of my house. And now they're going to be taking kids out of my house. Let's pretend, because I doubt that's what the law actually says, but I don't know. But let's pretend that's what the law actually said. And you believe the only way to protect your kids from a law requiring participation in gender sensitivity training, for instance, is to move them to another country. Got to go. We got to go, kids. We got to go somewhere where there's a respect for parental authority or at least a respect for some of the social order that we believe ought to be maintained, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you with me? That's the picture. Suppose that's the only way you can see protecting your kids. You'd be willing to do whatever it took to protect them. All right. Suppose the visas to the country that you find would be supportive of you as a parent and might provide protection for your family are unavailable. And by the way, unavailable because so many people from California all want to go somewhere that they can have protection for their children and their families. They don't have enough visas for you. You can't get there. So what are you going to do? Oh, well, well, we'll sneak in. We'll find a way to get into the country. We'll find a way to be a part of what, you know, to protect our family. We're going to do whatever it takes. You know, it doesn't matter what it takes. And by the way, I could be saying this with guns too, the same kind of thing. Not about people taking your guns away. I'm saying there are some families whose response is, oh, yeah, well, we'll just get our weapons and defend our family no matter what. In which case you're making a choice to say, I'm going to protect my family and I'm going to betray the society of which I am a part doing the same thing. So either way, you're facing the same kind of moral dilemma here when you're asking a question about family versus nation. So you say this, all right, to protect my family, I think I could justify sneaking across, say say someday you can't cross state lines without being checked. Say in California, they do what we're trying to do in Texas with abortion. And they say, yeah, we're not going to let you take your kid out of the state if you're just going to take them there and then deny them the gender uh, care that we think they ought to be able to receive because that's what we're doing in Texas with abortion. So if we're going to start making state lines hard to cross, we can just be talking about California and Arizona here for all I know. So you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to Arizona whether they want me to or not. I'm going to find a way to sneak across the border there. Well, you can say, and, and let's just say, okay, so let's say that's justified to protect your family. But then the people in Arizona might end up saying, you know, this unfettered immigration we've got of California that's coming into our state is bringing a bunch of people who are taking our jobs. It's bringing people in who are bringing all their religious opinions in and changing the makeup of our state and our demographics. And we don't know where this is going to go. There really is a consequence, by the way, to unfettered immigration. There really is. And there really is a consequence to families not being able to go where they think they can protect or provide for their families. There really is a conundrum there. There's a challenge. There's a difficulty that's not easily solved. The point is that we're not left without any morality just because in a fallen world, we don't have the perfect answer to every moral question. There's no perfect rational expression of pie. This is math again. But pie is still a real value. It still is something that is mathematically clear and certain and useful. It is a, it is a, a uh, number that we can actually use. The fact that we can't express it in terms of a ratio, there's no perfect rational expression of it, 
doesn't in any way qualify its reality. So there may be no perfectly rational explanation. This is just an analogy. So there may be no perfectly rational expression of morality in some situations, but morality is still a real value even in those situations. And we could go on with one moral example after another, but the point of the whole conversation is what I was saying last time at the end of the episode when we were closing. And I'll give those examples again, but then I want to give one other little part uh, of an explanation. You know, admitting that we are too inept, we put this out in social media, admitting that we are too inept to grasp truth firmly doesn't insult truth's firmness, but our grip's firmness. That's what I mean by this whole conversation, that our humility is what needs to grow, not our sense of arrogance that we know all things. And in our humility, we can actually be in a stronger position to know more things that are true. Uh, Acknowledging, for instance, that our reading of Scripture is always tainted by the limitations of our own experience, tainted by the prejudices of our way of having been taught it when we were children, tainted a little by our perspective on the world as a whole tainted by outcomes we'd like to derive from those scriptures, acknowledging that our reading of scripture, and come on, we all do it. Oh, you know, I need to, and if you've never taught a Sunday school lesson, if you've never sat down with someone and tried to show them something from the Bible, maybe you've never done this. But all the rest of us know what it is to sit down and say, okay, now, how am I going to prove to him that this is wrong? Oh, yeah, I know, there's that verse. And then we just take it and make it into what we need it to be in the moment. And sometimes they're close, and sometimes they're not even in the same ballpark. Acknowledging that our reading of Scripture is always tainted doesn't insult Scripture's authority or power, but ours. It questions our authority. It questions our power. Hour of Power. That sounds like an advertisement, doesn't it? The Hour of Power. That used to be a great program, right? Some kind of program. I mean, prominent, not great, prominent. Because I don't remember what it was. And if I, I'm back on task. It's not a bad thing to hold all of our opinions in abeyance. I said this the other day. You know what I mean by that. To, to hold your opinion, but also to know, eh, let me make sure. I, I'm not positive. Sort of like getting your rifle on a target and saying, I don't want to pull the trigger yet because I'm not quite positive that that's what I want to aim at. Is that the right target? Is that where I'm supposed to be pointed? So it's not a bad thing to hold all of our opinions in abeyance. That is to humble ourselves into a position of trust. And this is the part that brings it home for me because in that position where we've humbled ourselves, realized we're having to trust other things, helps us find Sometimes nothing more in the end than the fact that it's a good thing that the one we trusted really does have the authority he claimed when he rose from the dead. And then on the one we were talking about today, and this is what I'll add, and then I'll be done after this, on moral decisions, the fact that there's no clean path out of some of the alleys down which we've chosen to go, 
doesn't in any way mean morality's truth has somehow dissipated. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we choose to go down a dark alley. And then we get to the end and we find a moral dead end. Man, no matter what I do here, I'm going to be doing something wrong. I've got to break this promise or tell a lie. What am I going to do? I either have to, you know, ignore my responsibilities to reveal this to these people who it's going to help, or I have to break my promise to this person that I wouldn't tell. What am I going to do? You painted the, the, you chose the alley. You painted the corner. There is a corner we put ourselves in, same thing. But you chose the alley to go down. And we, and I'm not, I'm not saying every moral dilemma is your personal fault. I'm saying us as humanity, we go down these alleys and we get to the end and lo and behold, there's a brick wall in every direction and we go, well, there must be some easy way out. There's got to be some clear way out. There has to be a path out. And we run around in circles like a hamster assuming there's a hole somewhere. And sometimes there's not a hole and it's because we chose the wrong alley. But that's our responsibility. That's our fault. That's on us. And that's the world we live in. That's the fallen world we live in. And so what I'm saying is, it doesn't mean morality's truth is less important, that it's somehow dissipated, you know, evaporated into the air or something. It does mean we live in a fallen world. It does mean, and I will say this again, human beings have a remarkable capacity. We are good at this for painting ourselves into all kinds of corners, including moral ones. Yeah, I'll make that promise. And then the daughter walks out, you know? But we can always find a way. You know what I'm talking about, Jephthah, right? If you don't get weird on me, that's just Jephthah. And most importantly, I would go on to say, it does mean, and because what I've said so far is, it, yeah, we live in a fallen world, and yes, we paint ourselves into corners. But most importantly, it means sometimes... And this is huge for us as believers. Sometimes our only hope is a deus ex machina. And, you know, it's a, I've used the expression before. We've talked about it before. You, most of you know what it is. Some of you probably don't. A deus ex machina is the old Greek imagery. It's used in all kinds of discussions about dramas and, you know, television shows and movies and everything, you know, fictions, whatever. When someone comes in at the end and it's the great rescue at the last moment, you know, nothing could happen. He's about to be shot and someone shoots the assailant, you know, just out of out of thin air. It's like they just show up in the, the Superman kind of rescue, deus ex machina, God in the machine. The idea was that on a Greek stage you had a, a lever or a, 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 a I'm, I'm, I'm drawing it with my hand here in the air. I'm not drawing it. I'm illustrating it. A, a crane, you know, basically, that would lower a person onto the stage out of the heavens. And that would be the deus coming out, the god coming out of the stage machine in order to save the day in the, in the play that was going on, deus ex machina. And so in, in reality, we live in a world where sometimes our only hope is that this last-minute rescue from someone outside of the system, a deus ex machina. In other words, our only hope is redemption as a result of intervention from the outside, somebody over whom we had no control whatsoever from a problem we could not solve. We could not fix it. And yet just lowered from a crane in heaven, there comes down this being and says, I can do this. I can solve this problem. 
I can avoid all the dark alleys, all the painted corners, and I can get you out of the one you're in, even if it's already the grave. I can take you out of that. The need for that redemption to come from the outside, and this is just basic theology in Christianity, the need for that redemption to come from the outside, because it had to, right? Remember, we couldn't redeem ourselves. That would be absurd. The need for that redemption to come from the outside is part of why we should be willing to acknowledge that we cannot have the perfect answer to every problem or question. If we could, we'd need to paint ourselves out of that corner, but we can't because we don't have a complete answer to the most important problem. Even our own healing, our own deliverance, our own future is completely in the hands of the one who comes down from outside in order to rescue us from this broken system. In this broken system, then, we can acknowledge the imprecision with which we will always function at some level. And so I'll close the same way I did last time. With this fact that certain I do not need to be. Faithful I do. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.